This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer Worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Snymer. Questions of ethics hound the Trudeau liberals after former Governor General David Johnston ruled against a public inquiry into foreign interference in Canada. And age has never held back legally blind athlete Bill Wall. The 95-year-old will hop on his tandem bike once again to take part in the ride to conquer cancer. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A 95-year-old woman who was tasered by police at an Australian care home has died, sparking public outcry. Great-grandmother Claire Noland, who suffers from dementia, was critically injured after police responded to reports she was wandering around the home with a steak knife this week. The 33-year-old officer who tasered her has been charged with assault and remained suspended with pay during the investigation. The incident has prompted calls for an inquiry and the release of police body cam of the confrontation. Toronto Holocaust survivors gathered this week to take part in the rewriting of a Torah scroll, which was discovered 75 years after being hidden during the Holocaust. The gathering was held at the Apotex Centre, a Jewish home for the aged, at Baycrest, one of the largest communities for Holocaust survivors in Canada. The Torah scroll was rediscovered in bad shape after remaining hidden for so long, but it's being restored letter by letter by Holocaust survivors. The Torah refers to the five books of the Hebrew Bible and is also referred to as the written Torah and considered the most significant book for Jewish people. New research has linked carbon emissions from the world's major fossil fuel producers to an increase in extreme wildfires across Canada and the U.S. It finds 37% of the total burned forest area in western Canada and the U.S. between 1986 and 2021, larger than the size of Ireland, can be traced back to 88 major fossil fuel producers and cement manufacturers. The Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers says while its view is different from this study, there is agreement there needs to be more work to bring down greenhouse emissions. Ties the ribbon on it. Makes me feel like now, uh, now it's complete. One hundred and one-year-old veteran Fred Taylor finally got to walk across the stage at Cornell College's graduation last week. The Iowa native missed his ceremony while serving in World War II, but the college gave him another chance to take part 80 years later. And it's all thanks to Fred's 74-year-old daughter, Linda, who asked the school's administration if her dad could take part in the graduation procession. And after the administration agreed, she reserved plane tickets and hotel rooms to prepare for her dad's big day. With two degrees in music education, Taylor became a music teacher before retiring. The book industry is having a love affair with romance novels. The top-selling book in Canada last year was Colleen Hoover's It Ends With Us. Several of her books drove a 55% increase in sales of romance novels compared to the year before. And the same trend is happening in the U.S., all thanks to Hoover and others. 
The author has sold more than 24 million copies of her English-language books in all formats across the world as sales of romance books skyrocket. And the Harlequin brand is still going strong, too, publishing more than 800 titles a year, 40% sold digitally. I'll be back. At 75, Arnold Schwarzenegger has no plans to retire because he doesn't see the point. The actor, politician, and former bodybuilder says he's having the greatest time acting and has no desire to retire from his other ventures, too, like giving speeches against hate, promoting environmental protection, or running his business. As he puts it, retirement is not part of my program at all. I'm Christine Ross, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A public inquiry examining the leaked materials could not be undertaken in public given the sensitivity of the intelligence. This week, Special Rapporteur David Johnston tabled his long-awaited first report by announcing that he is not calling for a full public inquiry into Chinese interference in Canada because of the sensitive and classified information involved. While not surprised with the decision, critics say it is misguided amid accusations of a conflict of interest. So what will be the political fallout? We reached Ian Stedman, Professor of Canadian Public Law and Governance in the School of Public Policy and Administration at York University, who argues, in this case, perception is reality. This appointment of uh, Mr. Johnson to this file was uh, a time when they also had some controversy about the Interim Ethics Commissioner. Uh, And so it seems that the government should want to uh, do a little better job of controlling the optics, or at least the potential for bad optics in their appointments. So, but, but, I mean, David Johnston, when he did announce earlier this week that there would be no public inquiry, he he was kind of backtracking and kind of distancing himself from the Prime Minister, saying, you know, we're not that great of friends and so forth. So, I mean, clearly the government knew that these questions would follow. Yes, and so I think that's a, a really good point. Um, I'm at a point in my career where I like to give people the benefit of a doubt, but I also like to assume that they're smart and not that they're not intelligent. So I think what you picked up on is very intentional, I would say. They're not blindsided by any of this. They've been prepared for this, and that was the approach they took, or they decided to take, which was, I'm going to pretend as though our relationship, you know, isn't as close as people will want to to um, allege it is. Uh, I think that's very intentional. Right, so almost pre-planned going into this. Yeah, I would, I would think so, yeah, absolutely. Um, so do you think Pierre Polyev's um, reaction is appropriate? You know, his his oft-used refrain of the, the, the ski buddy, the family friend, and this is a fake job, and this is a conflict of interest. Is this the way he should be hammering away at this? I mean, that's what oppositions do, right? They, they make things uncomfortable so that the party in power has to do a good job of justifying and explaining their decision-making. Um, I think we, depending on who you ask in the street, you'll, have a diff- you'll get a different opinion about Pierre Poilievre's um, approach to, to the rhetoric he uses. Um, but I think overall, the idea that he is pushing back against government decision-making, um, making government squirm a little bit and have to justify their actions. That's what we want from an opposition. It really is. It's just a matter of, you know, people have different approaches to doing that. So what, what do you think the political fallout will be from this? I know there are growing calls now for Johnston to remove himself from this um, whole situation um, because of claims of conflict and, and so forth. But what do you think the political fallout will be? 
Yeah, and I don't want to be cynical here um, because we've just seen the Liberal government make a few too many missteps, and the fallout has been almost negligible for the most part. Mm-hmm. So I would, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to say, oh, they're, they're really going to have to wear this one. Um, because I think what we've seen is that there's always another story around the corner and people kind of move on. What I do hope, though, I do hope, though, is that this finds its way into the narrative next time we have an election or an election cycle. And people do remember that this is one of the things they should be taking into consideration, that the government doesn't seem to be doing a very good job managing optics um, of, with respect to conflicts of interest. And that's something that the voters should care about particularly if we want a strong democracy um, and we want the public to trust our democratic institutions. You know, perception is reality sometimes, and, and that's an important part of picking who governs us. Well, I, I get what you're saying. It's like the perceived um, optics of a conflict of interest and an actual conflict of interest, sometimes that line gets blurred. Oh, absolutely. And this is an important... I want to say it's a rather new or modern understanding of conflicts of interest you know, when we created these laws 20 to 30 years ago, what was written into them was that if it isn't a, a real conflict of interest, then it isn't a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. But as we've kind of developed into a society that, you know, is, is constantly communicating and constantly publishing and constantly engaging online, there's just more information available. And we have a better view of what's going on. You know, we push for government to be more transparent. And when it is, we share it with one another. And so now we can kind of see all of the ways in which maybe um, the decision-making hasn't been attentive to optics as it should be. And so I think we're at a point now where we have to admit, even though it's tough when you're in those positions, we have to admit that the perception of a conflict of interest and the perception of a bad decision is just as bad as making a bad one. Right. Because it ruins public's trust in that institution and that decision-making body, and we can't afford that. We can't afford that if we want to have a healthy democracy. So I want to ask you, David Johnston said that a public inquiry is out. He's not ruling out, like, some sort of uh, um, public hearings or so forth because he doesn't want to jeopardize sensitive information. Now, the opposition are saying, you know, allowing us access to that secret information is just an effort to silence us. But can't there be some sort of public inquiry without revealing too much that's sensitive? There can be. Um, It's possible that there would be a public inquiry that didn't reveal too much that's sensitive. I think no matter what here, though, you kind of have a double-edged sword, that if some of this stuff is sensitive, and it does inform uh, the, the analysis, whether Johnson's or someone else's. I think the public is never going to be satisfied with that as, a, as an answer, right? Don't worry. Trust me. Mm-hmm. I read it. It's sensitive. And this is what it says. Because we've put ourselves in a position where we've raised skepticism, where we've, there's a perception of a conflict, now everyone is already starting from, you know, halfway up the track of skepticism, and they're, and they're already looking for a reason to distrust. I, I think the big misstep was at the start. I think you needed to put this in the, in the hands of someone who well, it goes beyond reproach, who right. couldn't be accused of being a conflict or an insider or a liberal friend, because as soon as you did that, you just compounded the issues. So I'm not so sure how you walk this back, to be honest, other than a full-blown public inquiry. 
But even then, you, what you've identified is important. There's going to be stuff that's confidential, and maybe the public will never be satisfied. Ian Stedman, thank you so much for your insight. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. That was Ian Stedman, Professor of Canadian Public Law and Governance at the School of Public Policy and Administration at York University. I'm Christine Ross. This is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up at 95 and Legally Blind, Bill Wall will hop on his tandem bike for next month's Ride to Conquer Cancer. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP. Fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca. 95-year-old Bill Wall lost his vision in 2003 due to macular degeneration, but he says he hasn't lost his vision. That's why the nonagenarian will hop on a tandem bike to again take part in the Ride to Conquer Cancer next month for the 11th time. Now in its 16th year, the 200-kilometer trek from Toronto to Niagara Falls has raised more than $250 million for cancer research at Toronto's Princess Margaret Cancer Centre, which is among the top five research centres in the world. Three years ago, you said that would be the last time that you would do this ride. Now, at 95, you're going to do it again. So why the change of heart? Well, in the first place, I had intended to have the last ride three years ago, but it turned out that on account of COVID, we didn't have the ride. It was virtual. And I was really disappointed, but because of the media coming through, I was able to raise more money through the media, and I figured that would be my last ride. Unfortunately, a year after that, a very active person that I was familiar with by the name of Julie, Julianne Misk, passed away with cancer. And she was only 22 years old. At 16, she got cancer, and she did the ride for two consecutive years. I came out of retirement in her memory, and I did the ride with her dad on her tandem in 2021. In 2022, uh, although they brought the ride back again, I wasn't in condition because I hadn't done any training. This year, I'm doing it to raise money again because that's the reason for doing the ride. The entire reason is to raise as much money for Princess Margaret as possible. They need a lot of money to run an operation they do. You know, they're one of the five top hospitals or researched in, in the entire world. We have to be very proud that it's located in Toronto, our city. So, Bill, with you being legally blind, you are on a tandem bike. Can you tell us how that works? Well, I sit there and I, I just pedal. And the guy in front has to do all the steering. He has to change all the gears. And he has to watch out that we don't bump into anybody, because I could do that by myself. I just sit back and I pedal, and and we accomplish our ride that way, and we have a lot of fun talking together and so on and so forth. How much training do you have to do for this? I should do about five to 600 hours minimum on the bike outdoors. 
But I train every day for an hour indoors on a stationary bike and tandem. And I do that five days a week. Do you know how much you've raised so far by taking part in this ride? Yeah, I personally raised $76,000 in 11 completed rides. Congratulations, that's that's pretty impressive. Now, the power of Bill, which is the team that I formed, has raised a great deal more than that. Probably in over $700,000. You talked earlier about the young woman, but what else motivates you to do this? What motivates me to do it is, if you've ever been on the ride, the riders who have had cancer and survived are riding with yellow flags. And let me tell you, it's a heartbreaker. When I first started doing this ride, I don't know whether there was 50 flags. Now, it's in the hundreds. And that's because they're conquering cancer. They're healing people. People who are going through chemo and other treatments like radiation and so on, these are the people who give me the inspiration to get on a bike and just raise money for them. I like what you've said in the past, that you lost your eyesight, but you haven't lost your vision. That's right. I, I said I've lost my eyesight, but I'll never lose my vision. Bill, it sounds like you've met a lot of really good friends through this initiative. Yes, we have. Some wonderful people on the ride and some very wonderful people who are sponsors. Through the media, they have come through for us and they've really helped me along to raise a lot of money. And can you tell us a little bit about the ride? It's from Toronto to Hamilton, overnight in Hamilton, and then from Hamilton to Niagara Falls. So it's roughly 220 kilometers, all on back roads. So, Bill, people will no doubt be inspired by you. How can they get involved and donate? They can donate to my name, The Power of Bill, The Ride to Conquer Cancer, and it'll uh, bring them to my page, and then they just have to push a button and make a donation. So you think this may be your last year, or do you think you have another year in you left? Well... I'm taking advantage of God already. At 95, I, I think I've, I've exhausted his patience with me. <laughs> I think this will probably be the last time that I try to do the ride. Well, you're quite an inspiration, Bill, and I wish you all the best on the ride in June. And thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was 95-year-old Bill Wall, who's taking part again this year in next month's Ride to Conquer Cancer. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Zneimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.